Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today we're going across the pond for the first time to talk to our first English guest, YouTuber extraordinaire and my pal Dan. TYTD Reviews is here. Welcome, Dan. Hi, George. Thank you so much for having me on. Very much appreciated. <laughs> oh, absolutely my pleasure. I mean, you're one of the biggest horror fans that I know. We talk about it literally every day and oh, yes. and never a day wasted with yourself <laughs> and uh, before uh, we hopped on this this conversation we were just talking about how you were really excited that you had uh, just found it, uh, a new movie to talk about and it was something like, like the likes of which you hadn't seen in like a decade and i would tell us a little bit about your channel and and uh, like I mean, that just seems like it must be so exciting to find something to talk about and really be able to bring light to it. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, my channel is uh, TYTD Reviews. Um, we're on YouTube, and we also have a website where we sort of host extra bits, uh, little extra reviews and blogs and things like that. We predominantly look at the films that time forgot, sort of uh, forgotten, low-budget, no-budget, super cheap cinema, um, the films your video store clerk would warn you about, you know, um, all that kind of just... <laughs> <laughs> awful, awful stuff. But we do occasionally sprinkle in the nice sort of cult gems here and there to try and break up the flow and, and get a bit of a palate cleanse. What I was talking about to you just before we started was that I um, saw a film last night that I, I hadn't seen anything quite like it in the last 10 years. It was just so over the top and ridiculous. And the main reason why it was so ludicrous um is predominantly down to censorship, which is something I'm normally a, a massive advocate against. Um, I'm always one of these people who's like, you know, we need the uncut version, we need the director's cut version, we need to see how it was originally intended. But this film uh, I found, which was called Nutbag, which was released in 2000. In the US, it's got an uncut version that runs to about 80 minutes, and it's a very, very drab gore affair. It's it's a very long slog with a lot of extended murder sequences that are very unpleasant, and right. it's, it's sort of a little bit misogynistic, and it's just a terrible, terrible film. But... When it got sent to the UK, the BBFC, who were very, very strict against um, violence to women and sort of uh, extreme violence, um, took one look at the film and just hacked it to pieces. It's They've just taken all of the violence and horror and gore out. So what you're left with is a low, no-budget shot-on-video film of a man pretending to be crazy really badly, just sort <laughs> of wandering around at things and just preaching weird sort of semi viable verses. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a pet spider who he talks to um wow. who who sort of becomes his friend through all of it but it's it's weird it's kind of like um the best way to describe it is a poundland henry portrait of a serial killer but with all of the stuff that made henry portrait of a serial killer good <laughs> taken out and just replaced with like really half-arsed wow. performances it, i just sat there mesmerized for the because that's another thing as well the u.s cut runs to 80 minutes the uk cut runs to 64 minutes wow that's so, a lot they cut a lot out of it they did they took an absolute crap ton out of it so i'm just sat there completely transfixed by this film where um, you know, you'll know you see him stalking somebody and he'll go to run up to them and then it'll just hard cut to him sat in his room talking <laughs> to his spider again going, why did I do it, Jeremy? I'm not sure. <laughs> when I just Jeremy! Whole, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just absolutely insane, the film is. And it, the, the best part of it as well is um, in the extra features for the film, there's a, a message from the director who basically writes this... 
I can only describe it as a testimony. Just this super long, like multi-multi-slide waxing about the history of horror and how horror's <laughs> lost its way in the year two thousand, and we need to bring it back to being all about uh, the true violence and gore and shock that Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and the Friday the Thirteenth films sort of brought to the foray. And by the end of it, you don't sit there and think, "Yeah, this director's really got a point." You think, "Oh my god, this man <laughs> thinks he's a genius." <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's so funny. I mean, hey, it sounds like uh, a real trip to watch, and uh, that's part of what makes doing this show exciting as well, and I can only imagine that it's even more explicit when you're going through sort of the the cheesy movies and stuff of, like, that feeling of discovery and being like, what did I just watch? Like, I felt that way when I watched uh, Lost Highway the first time for this movie, where I was like... It, you're you're just so baffled and so excited to get to talk about it and be like everyone look at this thing <laughs> this oddity it's just a fantastic feeling isn't it there's there's always yeah. a great moment when you discover something like that and I, it's something i always try and, and keep an eye out for is it's almost like a a sixth sense sort of where you're watching something and either a hard edit or just the way a character will look or the way a performance of a line will be delivered and at that point, you'd realise, hang on a minute, I might actually be in for a really good time here. I, I know that it might have been a bit mediocre, but I'm going to stick with it. And nine times out of ten, you just you find those hidden gems, and it's just so satisfying. Yeah, definitely. Well, so you're here to talk about the best horror movie ever made. But like you said, the bread and butter of your show is sort of on the uh, other end of the spectrum, where you sort of have to sift through the dregs to find some gold. And I'm curious... Um, not only how you got into horror in the first place, but also how you found yourself gravitating towards the cheesier B-movie side of things as well. Well, I, funnily enough, um, I'd, I'd been listening to your cast for quite a while, so it, it gave me a bit of time to think about exactly where it <laughs> came from. And I think probably in terms of horror films, my dad is probably the biggest influence in in me uh, discovering my first few horror films, um, because the first film he showed me was his second favourite film of all time, which is Jaws. Wow, it's um, a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a hell of a hit. I was about five, maybe six years old when he showed me that. Um, oh, boy. Because <laughs> my dad's attitude is very similar to my attitude, which is that when it comes to things like um, the BBFC and censorship and age ratings and all that kind of thing, his attitude has always been, well, if a kid is old enough to understand and appreciate that this film isn't real and that the elements within the film are not to be sort of replicated in real life, then they should be allowed to watch it. So, for example, you know, he had no trouble with showing me things like uh, First Blood when I was growing (laughs) up because his attitude was, well, he knows that I I very much doubt he's going to be able to get an AK-47 or a Rambo knife in the near future. And (laughs) even if he... (laughs) We hope. And and even if he does manage to somehow get a hold of these things, um, he knows enough to know, hopefully, that going around and randomly murdering people probably isn't the best idea. So he sat me down and showed me Jaws as my first sort of foray into horror. And I think part of him did it mainly because he just wanted to see the Ben Gardner's boat scene um, (laughs) where the head pops out. Because um, if you've ever seen a five or six year old jump eight foot clean in the air... (laughs) (laughs) It was just tremendous. And me and my partner, we both have opposite experiences because we both saw the film around the same age. And when that Ben Gardner scene happened, whereas I jumped eight foot in the air, she just basically grabbed the cushion and went, yes, this is fantastic. She's the only person I know who gets sad when the shark dies in that film. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't massively a horror kid growing up. Um, obviously, I had the odd foray, like I say, in the sense of Jaws. Um, my dad also used to... I had a terrible phobia of dolls as a very young kid. Uh, my dad used to um, threaten to put child's play on unless I went to bed at a reasonable hour. So <laughs> that was one An effective threat. An oh, absolutely. Threat. Absolutely worked every time without fail. So I didn't really get properly, properly into horror until sort of my early teens, sort of 12, 13, 14 time. When I, I remember rightly, I saw a, a supercut of some horror films playing on TV, um, just sort of like the best of the slashes or something like that. And I thought to myself, you know what, I might as well explore these because I quite like film and I haven't really looked at horror very much. So I started uh, taping episode, uh, the Friday the 13th movies off the TV and I sort of had this little collection growing of the Friday the 13th movies. And then in high school, I met a guy who I later found out was maybe a little bit unstable. But he did help me get a lot of horror films. So it's kind of a, a, bit of a trade-off. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I struck up a friendship with him. And he had all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies on tape. And I had all the Friday the 13th ones. And neither of us had seen each other's films. So we just sort wow. of did like a weekly swap with them. Simpatico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which really opened the doors. And then I started getting into the Halloween films. And again... I think it was a case of I had four and five and he had one and two. So we swapped those around so we sort of filled in the gaps. So through my sort of early teenagers, I, I sort of built up a knowledge of the, the mainstream horrors and, and really got to appreciate them. Um, and then sort of in my mid-teens, I kind of drifted off on a bit of a, a side step, which was where I went into into bad films and B-movies. And that was a, a rabbit hole I wasn't really expecting to fall into. I started looking at films like The Day That Time Ended, and um, one of the ones that always stuck in my mind for years was Billsy Bub's Dollar Morte, which... <laughs> just, That's a fun name. Yeah, yeah. It, for a time, I, I really had a lot of self-loathing going on, because for a time, it was my <laughs> least favourite film of all time, and I hated it. But the problem was... The film was made intentionally to be awful. So I was kind of in this catch-22 where I was like, I really want to say it's my worst film ever, but I know that he made it to be the worst film ever, so I don't want to give him the satisfaction of it being the worst film ever because it is the worst film ever, but I, he, I don't want him <laughs> <Wow>. to know that. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to give him the satisfaction. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. So I sort of drifted down there for a bit and, and explored more B-movies and bad movies and things like that, and then... Around my late teens, I ended up going back to university, um, where I met uh, the co-host of one of the shows on my channel, The Comedy Dining Experience. His name's Ben. And he got me hard back into um, horror, but he got me in through a sort of alternate door, whereas rather than going and approaching the mainstream horrors, he took me in more through the, the Hammer and Amicus side of things. Um, so I ended up watching films like The Witchmaster General and Twins of Evil and Vampire oh, nice. Circus and, and all that kind of stuff, um, which really sort of broadened it. Just watched Twins of Evil myself the huh? other day. Ah, fantastic. What did you think? I liked it a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. You don't get enough vampire jailbreaks these days, in my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a real classic. Um, <laughs> but uh, funnily enough, it was Ben who finally nudged me into, because I'd always been a little bit reluctant to get into it, uh, nudged me into the film that we're going to be talking about today. Because uh, originally my uncle had given me a copy of this film when I was sort of in my mid-teens and I was just coming out of watching the mainstream horrors. And he said, I think you should watch this. I think you'd really like like it and i sort of read the title and read the back of the box and went 
ah, this this isn't really the Jason, Freddy, Michael <laughs> cycle style film that I like. I, I'll watch not. it later. Yeah, so I sort of <laughs> sort of put it to the side, said thank you because it's the British thing to do. You know, thank you very much. We'll just put it on the shelf and I'll never watch it. Thanks. But then a few years later at, at university, I, I told Ben that I'd not seen this film, and he was like. What what do you mean you haven't seen this film, Dan? This this is your film. This is the film that <laughs> that that will either you'll love it to pieces and you will never question anything about it, or you'll think it's the worst thing in the world and then you'll still love it because you'll think it's trash. So <laughs> it is technically a B movie as well. Yeah, technically, technically. <laughs> so so um, we we got together one night. I think he gave me a copy of it. Um, I think he had the Blu-ray at the time. He, he lent it to me, and I uh, sort of went away and 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 watched it, and it changed my life. And wow, it's it's one of those films now that I I watch yearly. It's a it's an annual event. Every every spring, I uh, I stick it on at the time that the film's supposed to take place in, and we uh, we go through the motions on it. And it's it's always yeah. a really fun experience. Is there a B movie? that you think is a really good like introduction because one of the things that i sometimes have trouble with because i am also a fan of b movies Hmm. is finding one that is good enough that it's not that like it can still uh hook someone who's not necessarily used to a b movie um but has enough uh, craziness to it that that you get that B movie experience. So I'm wondering if there's one that you find is a, is a, a a better introduction than others. It's a difficult one, really, because I know that everybody has different sort of tastes in what works and what doesn't. Um, right. I've gone through so many times where somebody has said, "Oh, I really want to get into bad movies," and I'll sort of skip over the sci-fi originals and the asylum films and go for something quite in that bracket, like you know, Manos, The Hands of Fate, or uh, The Ring of Terror, or Ega. And I'll right. sort of send it to them, and they'll come back going, "Oh yeah, that was um, g- great." Uh, I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to stick with I'm just going to stick with modern films. Thank you, Dan. Um, that's sort of the, the beginning <laughs> and end of it. No, yeah, I've lost them. <laughs> so nowadays, whenever it comes to sort of advising people where to go for um, for B movies, I always tell them to um, preferably go and look at MST3K because they cover B movies and bad movies, but they do it in an accessible way. Which means that your average Joe Schmo who's probably never seen, you know, Rocket Attack USA or Red Zone Cuba or, you know, the African Queen or anything like that can can go in and laugh and sort of slowly ease into that that weird B-movie world, that strange vibe. Right. And once they've kind of got to grips with the mechanics of B-movies and, and what's the bits that are supposed to be intentionally funny and which bits are supposed to be just badly made funny and all of that <laughs> kind of shtick, that's when I can kind of ease them more into non-rift materials. Interesting. Having So having the experts there to kind of hold their hands through you think is uh, the best way that they can do it uh, yeah i mean that's what i've found in my experience it sort of works double point really as well yeah. because on the one hand it eases them into the into the waters gently but then at the same time they can then come back to me and say oh you know i really liked um well the daytime ended or i really liked uh, merlin's shop of wonders and i can go ah right well if you liked them Boom, and then I've got my pile ready. I can just sort of throw at them and say, here's 20 films that are exactly the same, but probably worth to enjoy. <laughs> uh, yeah, hey, uh, I uh, co-signed, co-signed by George. Do you have a favorite MST3K host? 
I am probably Team Joel, if I'm going to be honest. There's just something about his relaxed demeanour that just Mm -hmm. very much sits right with me. Um, When I first started putting together my show about, it's coming up to nearly three and a half years ago now, that's uh, that's a blast from the past. Um, When I first started putting together my show, Joel was a a big influence on my delivery style um, because I'm a very relaxed individual sort of generally day to day I didn't want to be one of these shouty critics who sort of turned up and went this movie's a piece of crap and over the next 20 minutes I'm going to blow your mind but um, (laughs) I'm very much one of these people who just sort of likes to roll through a film pick it apart gently maybe put a bit of humour in but I don't want to over egg it too much and just you know treat it like what it is which is it's a film that's probably not very well represented probably not very well seen and and actually take it apart so joel was quite a a big influence in in taking that relaxed approach to um film criticism and review although i have nothing against uh, michael jonah sure both fantastic reviewers and i I would argue that jack frost is probably one of my favorite episodes of mst3k i put that out every christmas very nice but yeah no uh, i'm i'm probably team joel if i had to pick a camp Do you have a favorite subgenre in horror, and does it change depending on if you're watching, um, like a B movie? Do you like do you love cheap monster movies, but for a zombie flick, you're like, oh, it's got to be like an actually good movie? Absolutely, I would say, I would say my mac and cheese in terms of film horror film subgenres would be slashes, and that's purely because it sort of runs the rainbow in terms of you've got your full blown shot on video for 10p in somebody's back room hour and a half schlock fest that's just completely right. unwatchable shot on a potato and then the other side of the spectrum you've got your you know this film was five hundred thousand dollars in 1946 and it, it broke an industry and it's it's one of the greatest films ever made so i like the fact that it runs that gauntlet of cost balance and directional choices but i also like that it has emphasis that can change so for example you can get slashes that are maybe more thriller oriented you can get slashes that are maybe more gore oriented so you can kind of fine tweak your viewing experience to exactly the vibe you're feeling goriented even yeah yeah exactly (laughs) nice i like it i like it exactly yeah perfect it's it's exactly that it's the fact that you can you can get those exact measures just right i mean it the downside to it is it means that you end up with a a film collection that consists of maybe 600 700 slasher films where every one of them is only viewable under very specific circumstances (laughs) i'm I'm only in the mood for nail gun massacre tonight no other film will do Um, (laughs) hey we've all been there though we've all been there yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely um but then what normally guides my night in terms of of um films is is the vibe that that film the previous film will end on so for example i if, if i use nail gun massacre as an example i will probably sit and watch that all the way through and i'll go okay um that film was awful it's very very good fun i want to keep that momentum going i'm feeling a bit more like i want something fun i'll put blood theater on which is exactly the same but it's got more of a john waters edge to it and then when that's finished i'll go okay i've had enough of the fun now i maybe want something a bit more serious i'll put uh, day of the dead on and that'll sort of carry the train going and it's just that's how i tend to structure my nights i just sort of go on the vibe that the previous film left me with so to speak nice hey i respect that very laissez-faire 
a free-flowing approach that I respect a lot. Oh, thank you. But the movie that we're talking about today that you said is one of your favorites, it is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made, the 1973 British horror movie The Wicker Man. It's a great one. It's a really, really fantastic movie. It's uh, So it stars Edward Woodward, a fun name to say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the the UK, we always have a a joke trivia question we have at quiz nights that will always pop up, and it's... uh, True or false, Edward Woodward. <laughs> <laughs> and some people will go false, and you go, no, it's true, he would. <laughs> uh, he certainly would, in my opinion. And uh, it also stars Christopher Lee, absolutely fascinating guy, intelligence officer with the RAF in World War II, released several metal albums. He's been in over 275 movies, including incredible roles as Saruman in the Lord of the Rings series. He voiced Death in several Discworld adaptations. He was Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun. However, certainly at the time that this movie came out, and perhaps even to this day, depending on who you ask, uh, he was most well-known for having already appeared in uh, the Hammer horror films for over a decade, notably the Dracula series in particular. Mm, Absolutely. This film was actually the, the film he was hoping to kind of distance himself from Hammer on. He basically he'd been with Hammer since at least 1957, I want to say, with the Curse of Frankenstein. Right. Um, and he'd built up his his uh, his notoriety for being the sort of strong, silent type as playing roles of Dracula and the Mummy and Frankenstein. So he was kind of getting a bit tired of being typecast as just this strong, silent type, and wanted to kind of break away into more interesting areas of horror. So that was how him, Peter Snell, who was the owner of the film company that produced The Wicker Man, uh, British Lion, and Anthony Schaefer, basically sort of met and got together and, and decided to start looking for a way to get Christopher Lee into a new vehicle, so to speak. Yeah, that, uh, so Anthony Schaefer is the screenwriter, and uh, they also got Robin Hardy involved as the director, and uh, Schaefer and Hardy decided that the way that they were going to really break out of this image is by strongly contrasting the Hammer films, which have a pretty serious Christian bent to them a lot of the times, especially because they are so vampire heavy. And uh, they would make a movie that focused on old religion and this sort of uh, paganism that is reflected in uh, The Wicker Man. Now, parallel to this, British actor and author David Pinner wrote a film treatment for a movie called Ritual, where a devout Christian policeman is called to investigate what appears to be a ritual murder of a young girl in a rural village. Sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, the director attached to the movie, though, declined the treatment, and so uh, Pinner turned it into a novel in the late 60s. This is the book that Schaefer adapted as a screenplay uh, called Ritual, and he started working with it and then decided that a direct adaptation wouldn't work, and so he kind of just lifted the story. Much to Pinner's displeasure, he feels like he didn't get the credit uh, that he deserves because there's a lot of inspiration seemingly taken from it, even if they're not doing a one-to-one adaptation. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and of course, as well, the uh, the other big issue that cropped up from this as well is the, um, the three of them had stumped up £5,000, which in 1970s money was quite a lot, to buy those rights. And I believe there was right. even some litigation at some point between Pinner and Schaefer over exactly what was stolen because, uh, Sh- sorry, borrowed. Um, <laughs> so Schaefer um, denied that he'd, he'd 
basically wholesale stolen the plot of Rituals, but he d- he was also very keen to state that there were some scenes that may have just been influenced by it. Right. <laughs> which I think is very uh, very shrewd of him to go with the, well, we might have nicked your stuff, but we're not going to say, basically, right. was the angle he approached. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's impossible to say that, like, <laughs> there's there's no similarities or anything. So I do think it is smart of him to be like, look, you take on everything that you look at becomes part of you. You know, it's mm. impossible to control where your subconscious takes things. Um, and, uh, you know, sure, maybe I read the book and <laughs> it, it influenced me a little bit, whatever. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this, I think, is um, it's a great movie. And uh, who knows what would have happened if it had been a direct adaptation. Might not have been nearly as good. Absolutely. So. There was a uh, there's a scriptwriter of mine who's a, who's a personal favourite. He wrote a lot of um, Doctor Who, the original series of Doctor Who. His name's Terence Dix, and he always has this um, this quote that I absolutely love, and I, I carry it with me to this day, which is that you can have an original idea, but it needn't be your original idea. <laughs> <laughs> That is a great quote. Mm, it's. I also, I think it's really funny that even in like the turn of the 70s, you had people focusing on this nonsense of elevated horror because <laughs> Schaefer is, uh, he's quoted as saying that he wanted the film to be, quote, a little more literate uh, than the average horror picture, specifically wanting a minimum of violence and gore because he was tired of seeing uh, horror films that relied almost entirely on viscera to be scary. <laughs> so even in the, the early 70s, you had, uh, you had this type of person <laughs> getting involved absolutely and i mean it goes it gets better still because not only was he punching down in that sense he was punching up too because he would uh, he was quoted as well as um having a go at the uh, the execs at british lion because the first well as we'll get into inevitably towards the later half of the uh, the film the senior staff at british lion um changed hands halfway through the film's production um so the half that commissioned it really loved the film and then the half who didn't wanted it gone and Schaefer was quoted as saying that if you basically submerge yourself in carry-on camping, um, on the buzzes movies, and just utter trash, you're never going to have a good idea of what good horror cinema truly is. Which I just <laughs> think is just, oh, I just, you know, it's it's so snotty, it's one of the most yeah. British retorts I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, well, if you like that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> but one thing I will say, you have to respect that, if he was going for this elevated horror and he did the research, he did the dive, he did a ton of research on paganism um, because he and Hardy really conceived the film as presenting the pagan elements objectively and accurately. Um, he also wanted it to be accompanied by authentic music and a believable contemporary setting to give it that grounded feeling and create the unease of possibility. The only reason that this is effective as a horror movie is because it feels so possible for, for a group of people to have just sort of sequestered themselves. And without that feeling of authenticity, this just becomes uh, a, a fantasy film instead. Absolutely. There was, um, funnily enough, the, the one of the materials that he was very heavily reliant on Schaefer when it came to writing the script for The Wicker Man, there was a, I always forget if it was 12 or 13 volume, but there was a compendium that was released in the 1950s and 60s uh, called The Golden Bow, right. which was basically a a series that sort of the first half of it dealt with pagan practices and sort of paganism in general and went through all of that in very very graphic detail about exactly what that was involved 
But then the second half of it dealt with how pagan traditions and those pagan things that were discussed in the first half have been implemented into 20th century culture. So, for example, um, you have the uh, March Hare and the Easter Bunny being a, a parallel that, that basically Christianity um, wholesale adapted uh, like 95% of pagan right. values and sort of traditions. Like Christmas was a pagan festival originally. Um, right. But Christians just sort of went, oh, well, that's ours now. So <laughs> it was kind of drawing comparisons and sort of saying, well, you know, a lot of what the Howie is kind of rejecting in this film as, as blatant paganism, if you just sort of sanitize it slightly, is basically Christianity. Right. It's really interesting because the reason that early Christianity did that is to make it an easy shift from paganism into Christianity as they tried to convert people. But the problem, well, problem in quotes with that is that it obviously works the other way as well in that it's very easy to sort of see it as this uh, phony sham <laughs> that's <laughs> propped up on the back of another religion. Um, and and it kind of makes the whole ritual of everything ring false. Um and I think that that is uh, very interesting when you look at what this movie is saying in terms of Lord Summer Isle and them, the way that this island started just being sort of cynical like that. Mm. Um, and uh, and it, it, the whole thing, I think it, it just asks you to sort of look at them side by side in, in a very interesting way. Mm, no, absolutely. It's it's nice to see, um, in particular, there's a, a scene later on in the film where Howie and Summer Isle kind of have at it, so to speak, about paganism versus Christianity. And throughout it, you can see um, Lord Summer Isle is, is absolutely relishing the opportunity <laughs> to just completely and totally deconstruct Howie's, Howie's world, so to speak, because to... Howie is a character. Christianity is the beginning and end. That's his be all and end all. He doesn't. He doesn't even conceive that any other religion could be right because you know the UK is a Christian country and and Christianity is it. So when right. Summer Isle literally deconstructs the whole sort of idea of the virgin birth and um, of Jesus as a a force and and Christianity in general, it's just it's wonderful just to see just how the pressures build between the two of them as it goes on um, throughout that. I also love Absolutely. the fact as well that Summer Isle literally does not give a shit that Howie <laughs> regularly slanders paganism. Like, throughout the whole thing, <laughs> Howie's like, your god is false and you're all going to hell and you're all going to burn and he's just there with a smirk on his face going, you have no idea. <laughs> right, yeah, that that sort of being above it is so interesting. Compa- and, and, you know, when you look at the Beatle... Uh, comparison between Howie and uh, uh, yeah, I mean we'll we'll get to it all, but basically yes, this is it's a really interesting sort of parallel between Christianity and paganism and uh, the way that they sort of conflict in this movie. Um, the image of the Wicker Man, which gave the the film its title, is taken from a sentence in Julius Caesar's account of his wars in what is now France. I believe it was uh, Gaul at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Caesar claimed that the local tribes there had executed their most serious criminals by burning them alive in a huge man-shaped sculpture of woven twigs. For Schaefer, this was the most alarming and imposing image I had ever seen, he said. Which... It's it is it's very imposing and scary. It really is. For the promotional materials of the film The Wicker Man, they initially didn't want to show The Wicker Man. They wanted to make it more of a oh my god, this is a drastic thing 
you know, they wanted to make right. that shock very, very real. But British Lion really put their foot down and basically said, you can't have a film called The Wicker Man that features a man being burnt in a giant Wicker Man <laughs> and not show The Wicker Man in the promotional footage. We need that to sell the movie. So, but I just, I love the idea of, of if they had gone with the original plan of not showing The Wicker Man in any of the promotional materials, because that scene, if you went into it in 1973 with no prior oh knowledge that that was going to happen, would just be like... I don't know, you'd be climbing the walls by the end of it. You wouldn't know what to do. When this movie was being made, the film industry of Britain was, quote, in crisis. (laughs) (laughs) That's to put it lightly. (laughs) Um, And this was no different for British Lion Films, which, as you say, uh, was the company behind this. They were in dire financial straits. And it got bought by wealthy businessman John Bentley. And basically, in order to convince the unions that he wasn't trying to just asset strip the company, he was like, all right, I got to get a film into production quickly. And uh, that was Wicker Man, baby. (laughs) Fast pass. Yes, we love it. Pagan, Burning Man. Yeah, just get it made. Get it made. Here's £450,000. Make it happen. (laughs) Exactly. They were like, go make it happen. And that meant that the Wicker Man, which is set during the spring... Um, began filming in October of 1972, and uh, they had to resort to like fake trees and fake leaves and blossoms being glued to trees that were there but bare. Uh, they imported so many palm trees. It's why I mean uh, this cuts into their already small budget, um, which translates into uh, roughly five and three quarters of a million pounds today, which translates to roughly seven and a half million dollars today. So. In order to get the movie made, because they they had to get everyone to this island, they had to film everything there, there was a lot of costumes and, and a lot of production value stuff that they had to work on, and since he had been so involved in the process, Christopher Lee was like, all right, I'm going to do this movie for nothing. Like, I'm not going to take any pay on this. Reportedly, several others did as well, so you know, I think that... That really speaks to the sort of belief in the film, at least, but like that the people had in it, which is always uh, a good indicator that uh, it's at least going to turn out decently. This is the thing. I mean, Christopher Lee throughout, because I mean, I'm a massive Christopher Lee fan. I, I've loved him in I loved him in all of the Dracula films. I loved him in The Wicker Man. I've loved him in Lord of the Rings. He's he's a he's a phenomenal force, and he always comes across as absolutely gentlemanly and if he genuinely believes in something he always came to cross to me at least as being somebody who would go all out to ensure that it was done um so for him to turn up on the wicker man having already sunk a portion of his own money into the botched rituals purchase and say you know what i really like this film i think it's going to be really good i'm going to do it for free I, th- I think that was really respectable just an, as well another note in terms of the location filming <laughs> i know that you mentioned it was shot in the autumn it was largely filmed around scotland there were 25 locations in scotland and if you've ever been to scotland in the autumn or winter um you'll know that it's not just cold it's absolutely bitter <laughs> it's like it's below zero most of the time wow. it's raining sideways every day uncontrollably it's it's a thoroughly cold miserable and uninhabitable place um and the area that they were filming in newton stewart um which was where they filmed the bulk of the scenes for the wicker man was undergoing modernization at the time so like literally the direction the camera is pointing in the film if you were seeing what was behind the camera um you would just see like a building site. <laughs> so it was it was just a building site in the rain it was like minus four every day wow <laughs> freezing sounds like cold. hell honestly just, yeah <laughs> 
Absolutely. So the fact again that Christopher Lee was like, "Yeah, I don't need any money for this. I'm just, I'm just here to enjoy myself." Was <laughs> just like you got to respect you know, it. You absolutely got to respect yeah. it. And uh, as you say, it was filmed across plenty of uh, Scottish towns and stuff. Uh, delightfully named two a one, including Gatehouse of Fleet, Newton Stewart, Kirk Cudbright, <laughs> and Creetown in Galloway, as well as Plockton in Rossshire. So, some real great town names there. I love the classics. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? (laughs) Interestingly, halfway through uh, filming, they decided it's a musical now. Um, (laughs) Which, I mean, I wish more things made that decision halfway through. I love a good musical, and uh, there needs to be more horror musicals, in my opinion. Um, Absolutely. They roped in Paul Giovanni for the... uh, Exactly. ...the uh, honour of (laughs) of, uh, producing the score for The Wicker Man. Giovanni had a history in folk music, um, and Schaefer basically shared some of the notes on paganism, but he pretty much already got a good idea of what what he was looking to do. So, yeah, he had an absolute ball. He said it was one of his favourite projects to work on, um, was doing all of the uh, musical numbers and incidental music for The Wicker Man. Yeah, it's great. He does such a great job with it, too. I mean, it's... It's all fantastic. I mean, I assume that you like it as well. (laughs) Oh, it's just... I have the soundtrack on CD, I have it on cassette tape, I have it on vinyl, I have it on heavy-duty vinyl. Wow. No matter matter how you want to listen to it, you're prepared. I've got it. I can get you the copy of the Wicker Man soundtrack in six minutes or less, or your money back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely adore it. Some of the tracks on there are are wonderfully composed. Um, The Landlord's Daughter is a personal favourite of mine. I love Corn Rigs. That's my my favourite one. Absolutely, and they use almost every other moment of the film to make you uh, remember that song, because whenever Howie does any of his travelling, that song just immediately starts fading Oh up. yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> which, is, which is beautiful. Uh, the Maypole song as well is another one that I have a real yeah. soft spot for. Um, just for how surreal it all is and again depending on which cut of the film you watch that that either gently sort of graciously comes in or just wrecking balls <laughs> straight in it's just like it's either like soft nice transitions or hard cut that's it there's no <laughs> no middle ground uh, this like you say it was uh composed and arranged by paul giovanni under the direction of hardy and schaefer they had already uh, done a lot of research into the music based on the work of cecil sharp who was a founding father of the folk revival movement in the early 20th century. And they used Sharp's collection as a template. Schaefer told Giovanni which scenes were going to have music, and he occasionally also provided appropriate lyrics from, uh, the, from the research that he had done. The other songs that aren't done by Giovanni are from folk uh, traditions, though, including The Delightful Corn Rigs, which is uh, a later folk song by Scotland's national bard Robert Burns, which does play, like you say, when Howie is traveling. Interestingly, though, although they used the lyrics of this 1775 song, uh, the tune was made for the movie. So it's kind of this really interesting blend of the past and the present coming together. I think that it really, you know, it might have just been a necessity, but it does sort of reflect the movie in an interesting way. Oh, absolutely. Um, And I think it plays further still into the the tones of the film in the sense of pagan traditions being modernized um i think it's it's taking older forgotten works that were more prevalent when when sort of you know large communities would have songs that would just travel from village to village in the uk and and giving it that modern twist which um is wonderful uh, one of the things i'm i'm very big on is um film recycling the idea of taking old materials that have been considered spent and actually making them better than they were or improving on Mm -hmm. them 
So the idea that they've taken all these really classic sort of uh, rounds and uh, ballads and things like that that were just sung amongst workers as they worked and and have given them this this boost and this upgrade to make them these really beautiful folk compositions, it always really never fails to put a smile on my face. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really great. Um, They also reach all the way back to the mid-13th century with the song at the end of the film, Sumer is Ikumen in... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> written by the Gersbumps girl. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed she did. Um <laughs> uh, but by late 73, the movie started wrapping and finishing shooting. British Lion was scrambling and failing to avoid bankruptcy. And so a new studio head was put in place named Michael Dealey, and Dealey really didn't like the Wicker Man because he thought that it was no, he blasphemous. <laughs> to that end, he suggested a more upbeat ending to the film, which I'll mention as it comes up. I don't want to jump that far ahead, but the suggestion was refused. And so basically, Dealey told them to get fucked and uh, started trying to unload it as quickly as possible while also demanding cuts, winding up with a 99-minute version of the film, now known as the extended cut. Yes, also known as the director's cut as well, also known as the this is the most film that we actually have of The Wicker Man all put together. As we'll get into, they were not, I mean, not only were they not fucked about the film, they were not fucked about the preservation of the right. film in any way, shape, or form, um, as we'll no doubt get into later. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so this movie, it, originally it played at Cannes uh, with this 99-minute version. Roger Corman expressed interest in the U.S. distribution. And so they sent him the full movie for advice on what to cut. And basically he came back to them and was like, hey, here's another 13 or so minutes um, that you can get rid of. They didn't consult the director or anything. They just said, great, thank you, Roger Corman. <laughs> they made those yeah, cuts. Pretty much. <laughs> It gets better as well, because after he got in touch with them about the cuts, they were like, uh, so we also heard you want to do distribution. What kind of money are you talking about for uh, for this film where we're going to cut for you? And he went, oh, about $50,000. And they went, no. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> not enough cutters. not enough for them. They wanted to recoup more of the expenses. Uh, so they turned to a company called National General, which is like the most fake-sounding company name in the world. <laughs> it's, it's like Ink Incorporated. Exactly. It's just like, you know. But National general agreed to buy the rights for three hundred thousand dollars and so they were they were psyched about that british lion was like great four days after signing the deal national general went bankrupt (laughs) game over (laughs) (laughs) and so now the rights passed to the warner brothers company which they they had this film they tested it primarily in drive-ins um in the bay area some in atlanta as well like some college theaters and it did actually get a really positive review in variety magazine but testing was lukewarm and they pulled it and it's it's kind of understandable because like they said like how do you expect this movie to play to people who are busy making out in the back of their dad's ford like it's not really that kind of movie it's it really sort of demands your attention and for you to actually engage in the world of the film unlike something that's a little bit more um flash you know no absolutely and this then kind of caused a bit of a backpedal on both warner brothers and british lions part um because they were both then basically scrabbling to wring the rag as dry as they possibly could of any money that they could make from the film so british lion immediately went in with well why don't we try and make it a double feature which was the worst possible 
possible move because double features were just going extinct at this right. point. Um, nobody was going to double feature screenings. Just a, re- a real slap in the face for the Wicker Man. Oh yeah, absolutely. Not only was it uh, was it resigned to a, a double feature, it was resigned as the B picture in a double feature, which was like that. That's the 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 low of the low, so to yeah. speak. And it got so bad that Christopher Lee ended up ringing up any friends, acquaintances, film critics, anyone he could to get them to go and see the film. Uh, in particular, film critics, he offered to pay them <laughs> to go and attend the film to write reviews for it. At the exact same time that it was going on, Warner Brothers looked at what British Lion were doing and went, right, okay, well, we've invested in this film, we better try and do something. So they started putting it out on the double feature circuit in the US. Um, this was at the very tail end because it only had a very limited screening run. But I can't, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the film they double featured it with was. In the UK, the movie that it played with was Don't Look Now, starring Donald Sutherland. Um, I don't know <laughs> if it was the same movie in the US, but mm. that was at least it for the UK. And... You know, it, it was well-received. The critics who did see it liked it, and the people in America who saw it liked it, but it, it like you say, it was sort of, it had this really limited run, and uh, the lack of availability in America sort of gave it a little bit more of an allure than it uh, had over in the UK, and cut to... 1976. Oh, sorry. Can I just take you off oh. your tail there? There is one extra final roll of the dice that uh, Warner Brothers did um, that that was only very limited, but it, it did go out. So after the double features stuff didn't exactly set anyone's socks on fire, they went back and they thought, right, well, what are we going to do with this film? At the last minute, they kind of thought, well, we've got to try and recoup some losses. And one of the things that was quite prevalent in the 60s and 70s, it might even have been the 50s as well, was the idea of 8mm mm. distribution. So before the days of VHS, you would get between three and six film reels released by film companies um, that would contain the edited highlights of the best bits of Earth versus the Flying Saucers or the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, two of the most notable ones that had 8 mil releases that the public could buy and they could play on Super 8 projectors and sort of have the film in the house before the days of VHS. So they very briefly dabbled with the idea of potentially doing a 8 mil cut of The Wicker Man which would have run between 8 and 15 minutes. There isn't a lot of information about this print available. There's a couple of references to it in a couple of academic papers, and a couple of film critics, uh, Mark Kermode and I think Kim Newman, have touched on this briefly. Um, But the idea was that they were going to recut the double feature length version of the film into a triple feature length cut which would run between 8 and 15 minutes long (laughs) and they would show it as part of triple bill screenings preferably in grindhouse theaters i just don't even know what you could possibly compress this film into for i'm gonna tell you the exact plot beats of this film um (laughs) or at least what is known about this film so it runs between 8 and 15 minutes and here is the triple bill cut of the wicker man Howie lands his plane at the harbour. He talks to some of the harbour people about the disappearance of Rowan Morrison. He walks along the bay and he finds Rowan at the beach about to be sacrificed. He picks her up, they go up to the wicker man and then get burnt. And that's the end of the film. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which is just... All the nuance is gone. We don't need musical numbers. It's it's just done. That's the the triple cut. That's really funny. It got screened like two, maybe three times, and then they they just went, no, no, this, no. And then it never got an 8 mil release. But um, yeah, that's my that's my favourite cut of the, the Wicked Man, <laughs> one that I can't get a hold of, because I would just love to see the audacity of it. Yeah, that's how you know you're a real one, is if you've seen the 8 millimeter cut. <laughs> <laughs> 
forget the director's cut. I'm OG. I only do the eight mil cut. I need answers now. Which surprisingly probably would have made Michael Dealey a lot happier. You know. Yeah, I'm sure it would. Have. And uh, hey, you know what? They were ahead of their time. This is the this is the TikTok of 1970s. <laughs> Absolutely, I just, I just, I find it such a ludicrous idea that they would even consider it. I mean, yeah, this movie in particular, <laughs> I think, is really particularly poorly suited to it. Yeah, it's almost like they took the Mona Lisa and put a blur filter on it. <laughs> it's just all those fine details gone, yeah. just beats. That's all that was left. Yeah, that's um, that's a bad idea in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. A few more years go by. 1976, Warner mm-hmm. Brothers sells the rights to the movie for just $20,000 to a little company <laughs> called Abraxis. Oh, God. Um, Hardy, who is now based in America, working on screenplays at this point, calls them up and he's like, hey, just so you know, you're buying the bullshit version. <laughs> There's and an ex- like, oh. Yeah, right? He's like, There's an extended cut out there. It's better, I'm sure. Uh, let, you should try and get that. And so Braxis is interested because um, it is run by some people who are genuinely interested in film. So it's not a purely monetary uh, decision that they're, they're doing here. Mm. And together, they start looking for copies of the original. Um, however, by this time, British Lion had completely gone under, and in the transition to the new company, uh, the 368 reels worth of footage had been thrown out, rumored to have been used as landfill in the nearby M3 motorway while it was being built. So That was uh, later debunked, unfortunately, as well. Um, basically, um, Peter Snell, who was one of the um, co-workers of British Lion, who was still working there after British Lion had gone bump, and Christopher Lee um, helped to seek up the inquiries on the London side because Hardy was based in America at the time. Right. And um, when they found out all the rushes were destroyed, I think Christopher Lee went on a either went on a talk show or did an interview um, for a magazine where he said something to the effect of, oh, yes, they've probably all been used as landfill for the M3, um, but afterwards he sort of clarified that he didn't know what happened to the rushes because generally what tended to happen was they'd just be magnetised and then skipped so they'd right. sort of be run through a giant magnet that would wipe any sort of tape footage and in the case of film it would just be burnt um, and then they'd just be sent off to general landfill um, but yeah, Lee, Lee basically I think in a bit of a huff about the fact that um, <laughs> he was just his, being his, sassy about it, yeah, because his passion project had been had been junked. Just picked something re- uh, relevant, which was the construction of the M3 motorway at the time, mm. and went, yeah, they're probably all there. Wow, um, which yeah, it was later turned out it was was not the case. But there you go. it was it's stuck in fan circles for years. That that ran for at least thirty or forty years. People going, oh yeah, no, if you go and dig up the M3 motorway, <laughs> you might find a deleted scene of the mainland. <laughs> Hey, this is the little mini episode of Mythbusters here in the middle of <laughs> Best Little Horror House in Philly. Kachunk busted. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it occurred to them to check with Corman. And thankfully, Corman is a guy who like gets it, the importance of archiving. And he still had the only copy of the extended cut left in existence, mm. which, good. Thank goodness for Roger Corman. Oh, God bless the man. He gave me some of my favorite Vincent Price films, so I can't oh, yeah. knock him. He's a producer <laughs> extraordinaire, to be sure. He's got a lot of hits in the, in the old tank there. Oh, yeah. But they, gave, they made a duplicate of it, 
they went to work restoring it for an American release. This still has a few cuts in it that were agreed on, like the mainland introduction, but eventually the the definitive cut was released to rave reviews in America with the magazine Cinefantastique going as far as to release a commemorative issue and label it The Citizen Kane of Horror. Which is so classy for this film. Yeah, (laughs) right? I'm sure that... Every everything that they were talking about when they were like, we're going to make an elevated horror movie, like that was all vindicated in that moment. <laughs> Just seeing Anthony Schaefer reading his copy of Cinefantastic going, yes, <laughs> yes, finally. <laughs> um, yeah, um, but then both the director's cut and the final cut disappeared off the face of the earth to UK viewers. Um, the US managed to get it in various forms over the years. Um, but the theatrical cut in the UK was the the de facto version, the only one that people could could really actively get a hold of, unless you had a US friend who was keen to import obscure British horror films. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and then it basically it sat that way for the best part of twenty to thirty years. We'd get the occasional screening of the theatrical cut on um, terrestrial television, so uh, Channel Three, ITV, and I may think the BBC did it once. But it wasn't until two thousand and one that the UK and the US both got the respective copies. So the UK didn't really get the director's cut of the film until about 2001, and the US didn't get the copy of the theatrical cut until then either, which I think that the uh, the UK got the better deal out of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think you're probably you know. right. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, hey, it happens. Sometimes you uh, take one for the team. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, what astounded me, though, because like I say, when um, you asked me to potentially be on the show, I, I immediately started looking into it. And what, what did astound me from the US standpoint is how many alternate versions of this film actually did the rounds in America. Because the first sort of pieces of information I could find about it was like, oh, the director's cut was only sort of marketed around in, in fan circles. And it was very hush hush. And it was who you knew, not what you knew, would get you access to the director's cut of the film. <laughs> and then the more I dug, I found that there was like four or five releases of the middle cut but with like a minute or two missing on each version so like one version would be 95 minutes another would be 96 (laughs) another be 94 and then all of this went on and then i looked at the uk release history and it was like there was a pre-cert release that was 10 minutes short released in 1975 76 and then it didn't get seen again on video until about the late 80s and then it didn't get seen again until the late 90s and then it went dvd blu-ray and that's it it was like there's six releases in the us and we had like three <laughs> when we like like you said we were talking about sort of what movie we were going to talk about and you were like by the way what which cut are you going to watch and i was like what what are you talking about because i had already seen this movie but i just was like sure i'll just watch whatever cut i can find and uh that was when you came back to me and said i found this one called the triple cut i don't know if it's (laughs) (laughs) i threw it out it was only 18 minutes (laughs) no (laughs) be a short episode very short episode Hey, you'd be surprised. We did the we did that outer space short and still managed to talk for an hour. So, oh wow! <laughs> but uh, like the version that we will be talking about is this uh, sort of director's cut middle middle ground one. Like we said, Christopher Lee uh, loves this movie. He paid for his own press tour out of his pocket, uh, and he hit every stop willing to interview him about the movie. With rumors abounding of live public access early morning shows in Iowa appearances. 
So um, I should also warn you in advance, um, whichever cut of the Wicker Man you choose to watch will always be the least liked version. Um, <laughs> it's just like, uh, like Blade Runner. Yeah, effectively. It's <laughs> like the people who like the theatrical cut, which is me, um, are hated by everybody because the theatrical cut is seen as the worst one. But I personally think it's the best because it's the most tightest. It's the one that, that cuts all the lean out. It's literally mm. just you get the film, everything in it, boom, done. The final cut, which is the one we're talking about, is kind of the middle ground. It gives you a little bit more breathing space. It puts a couple of songs back in. It rearranges some scenes. It moves things around. And that's considered the definitive version, as you mentioned, by Robin Hardy, because that's the one that he cut last and the one he was happiest with. And then you've got the director's cut, which is basically the one with all of the footage in that only the really hardcore purists like, because it's ridiculously long, yeah. um, to the point where you know you might as well start making a bed up before the uh, <laughs> before the midpoint, because it just it goes on so long. Yeah, I agree. I think that it is nice to have your options. <laughs> you know? mm. oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we do get the triple cut, uh, the triple cut favorites, favorites, yeah. but we largely ignore those. <laughs> And, of course, you can compare Christopher Lee's love of this movie to Rod Stewart, who tried to block the release when he learned that his then-girlfriend, Britt Eklund, appeared naked in the movie. (laughs) Rod, imagine that history where Rod Stewart just managed to completely block the Wicker Man from ever becoming part of horror canon. (laughs) Because his his ex-girlfriend... Now, like now, his ex girlfriend was naked in it. Yeah, and I mean, she's only naked um, from the top half up. Right, her bottom half. So you had to get a stunt person in because stunt she was pregnant butt. at the time. Yeah, there was a stunt arse, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I just is amazing. And the best part of it was after the film came out, she um, she did another interview. She, I don't know whether she likes the film or doesn't like the film because no, every time she's asked to do an like interview it. about it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so every time she's asked to do an interview about it, she's like, yeah, sure, brilliant. And then she turns up and just like shits on it for like an hour, and it's just. Like, why? Why? <laughs> but yeah, she didn't. She didn't like a stunt double because apparently she had a fat ass. Which, right. Yeah, it's just you know. But that being said, as well, she's also overdubbed all the way through the film. So. <laughs> well, she has like what a, a thick Swedish accent, right? Yeah, they tried to get her to do a um, Scottish accent, and she literally just could not do it. So in the end, they got. Let me just find it. I've written it down because the name was was very familiar, and I couldn't figure where I'd put it. Just one second. Sorry, I'm going through editing notes. Here. No problem. It was redubbed by somebody called Annie Ross, who you'll probably best know as Granny Ruth from the Basket Case films. Wow. Um, she was also, she played a character called Vera in Superman 3. She overdubbed the entire of Britt Eklund's lines, which she was not happy about. And that was one of the reasons that led to her doing an interview during the production of the film where she basically said it was the most dismal experience of her life and she never wanted to work in film again. <laughs> hey, listen, I'll be honest. I can kind of understand where she's coming from. If, like, if Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's not, not very nice. Um, no, no. I think in that interview, she talks about how, like, it's compounded by the fact that, like, they lied to her about what was going to be happening and everything. So certainly not uh, an ideal scenario for her. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was it was a miserable experience as somebody who's been on shoots in the middle of winter in the UK and, <laughs> and, and sort of been present on sets that are well below zero. I can tell you that after a couple of hours, the... Uh, the, the sheen of the Hollywood system very quickly wears <laughs> off and it very quickly just becomes what on earth am I doing with my life so to have to do that through you know multiple days of shooting with very little to no respite feeling a bit isolated and also having to deal with pregnancy and things like that I can totally imagine that she was having probably the most miserable time in the world yeah I agree 
So to get into the actual movie, we're going to shift gears here into that. It starts off the day before, or excuse me, the day after my birthday on April 29th, 1973. So Many happy returns. Thank you. Um, (laughs) We call it Wicker Man Day. (laughs) We see Police Sergeant Neil Howey. And this dude is like, bam, Christian, singing those psalms at the top of his lungs, sermonizing, taking communion. And one thing I think is really interesting is that it's sort of presented like a classic montage of an action hero preparing for battle. And that is sort of what he's doing here is preparing to go into battle. Mm, Absolutely. It's one of those ones where he's sort of mentally preparing himself to go out and do police work. I mean, the the main reason why it's cut the way it is is because when it came to re-editing the director's cut into the theatrical cut, they had to remove as much of the mainland footage as possible because it was seen as incredibly boring. And the church sequence was originally set to run for nearly double the length that it currently runs for. Not ideal. (laughs) Yeah, no, not at all. So they they largely sort of super-cut it together. At the time that the film came out, there wasn't really that much of a of a superhero scene, so to speak. But I get what you're saying completely. It, it's very much that kind of... It establishes straight away that Howie is a hardcore Christian who will not take any nonsense. Uh, he believes what he believes. And it, it does have that feeling of, of preparing to venture out into unknown territory, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and sort of that... that uh, especially the scene where he's taking communion, which, again, really sort of re-emphasises that almost protection element like it's almost you know you could imagine a similar scene with somebody armoring up so to speak you right know, he's taking his rambo his wine yeah yeah, on. <laughs> yeah yeah no absolutely um so yeah no I, I agree it's it's one of those scenes that weirdly was probably cut for time but has been cut into a better shape for it yeah exactly yeah exactly even if they're not even if they weren't like i'm gonna sit here and i'm gonna make it so that it's like an action movie you know winds up becoming that way and uh you know the movie kind of has a life of its own in the editing room so it does i think definitely come out for the better and edward word edward woodward enjoy that comparison to rambo because i'm sure that it does not happen frequently (laughs) for neil howie we are um, making connections tonight, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, the preacher is the director, I read. So that's fun. Yeah, nice little uh, cameo in there yeah. from uh, Mr. Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Howie journeys by seaplane to a remote island in the Hebrides, an archipelago off the west coast of Scotland named Summer Isle. And he flies over. We get just these beautiful landscapes, and the corn rig song kicks in, and I just mm. really... I love it. I really love that opening oh, sequence. Such a nice montage of shots, and especially, I mean, I I started on the DVD version, then went back to the VHS version, then went up to the Blu-ray version. The transition from VHS to Blu-ray is just next level. The the 35mm elements for this film have been restored perfectly. Everything looks so crisp and vibrant and colourful, which is especially surprising, as, as we mentioned, it was filmed in the middle of extremely rainy, horrible, cold Scotland in the middle of winter, nearly a sort of autumn winter bordering so for them to be able to create such a lush and colorful opening sequence and have that music so powerful is just it's beautiful really nice yeah the evil eye rowing boat which takes sergeant howie to and from his plane um was actually not made for this movie it was uh, a belonged to a resident of plockton and uh, basically the producer saw it and they were like we're gonna commandeer that boat brother and they they put it in the movie um Uh, the the british way (laughs) you see that that's ours now take care (laughs) on your way (laughs) 
Um, the boat actually did survive until 2004 when, unfortunately, it was destroyed in a storm rip to that boat. Oh. A real one. Gone but not forgotten. Yeah. Elton John is writing a sequel to Candle in the Wind as we speak. A boat, boat in the storm. Yes. <laughs> um, and so Howie is there to investigate the disappearance of the young girl Rowan Morrison, uh, about whom he has received an anonymous letter addressed to him personally. This is, I mean, it's a sort of stock setup, but it's it's used very effectively here, I think, especially the way that it's sort of um, the little breadcrumbs of it get revealed where he's like, I'm here on this like remote island. By the way, I got this letter. By the way, it's about a young girl disappearing. By the way, it was sent directly to me, not just to like the police station. I think it does a really good job of sort of establishing this mystery right away. Yeah, absolutely. It um, it really starts just getting that momentum building up, um, and the response from the villagers who are sort of occupying the harbor at that time Great. of denying that anything about this is even you know a thing. Like they're like, not only does this girl not exist, no one could have possibly sent you that letter. You shouldn't be here. There's no thing to worry about go away yeah even the most cursory info is given up just begrudgingly they don't want to even let him onto the island like they don't want to let him land even absolutely and the best part of this as well is that um the final cut and the theatrical cut really get to the meat and gravy of this straight away within sort of five to ten minutes you're, you're at that harbour and all of this is being unfolded if you were still watching the director's cut at this point you'd still be in the mainland um, <laughs> because the majority of, of that cut focuses entirely on how he sort of setting himself up as the righteous police officer so to, to have these two cuts just straight away drop you in it and, and give you both all of the information and none of the information at the same time if you know what I mean mm-hmm. is super quick it's just getting those beats down right away and if you've if you're re-watching this film for the first time and you know what happens you see all these nice little flicks in the extras all these little twitches of the oh, eye yeah. little smiles things like that because <laughs> you know what they know they know you know this is our this is our meal ticket so to speak it, it, it's that's why I, one of the reasons i love this film is the rewatch value as well of just seeing all these little flourishes of facial emotions and things like that that you don't pick up on the first viewing is is great yeah absolutely um and he goes to check in with may morrison who runs the post office and she's like no way my kids right here man (laughs) i first of all i think that's just really funny but then also the daughter seems like she's gonna provide some insight but she's actually talking about a hair which doubles down on sort of this like oh man he's really not gonna catch a break anywhere here yeah absolutely i just i love the the utter reluctance of them to even admit i mean like i say like you say literally has to drag them kicking and screaming to admit that she even begins to exist let alone that she is may morrison's daughter and that she's you know lived here for years and just that that rictus smile that may morris gives um, Sergeant Ooh. Howie, uh, when she's like, "No, no, this is my daughter. You've you've never seen the other one. I didn't, I'd only have one daughter, and she's the perfect thing." <laughs> and he's just sort of saying, "They go, well, somebody has sent me this letter and this picture of this girl, and it's directed at you. So you know, I need an answer. What's going on here? It's just how hands off everybody is in that scene, and and how bristly Howie is to try and figure out what on earth is actually going on. Yeah, they're really letting him sort of carve his own path to uh, to." 
self-destruct. Mm. Um, he goes to check into the inn on the island, and uh, this is when Willow is asked to show him to his room, and he's treated to another song, a body barroom shanty about the landlord's daughter. Yes. It's delightful. And the bar is just having like a good time. They're stomping and shouting and jumping around, and there's Howie just friggin' like sulking in the corner, <laughs> being like, <laughs> I hate everything about this. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just it's so wonderful because even even in that scene they're teasing him they they know already his background they know that he's a, a christian they know that he's very uptight and repressed about uh, sex and sexualization in that sense um so a song where they literally are just sort of very bordily gordily shouting about how much they would love to have sex with the landlord's daughter is a, is just fantastic it's almost like they're teasing him it's almost like they're saying you know we know you don't like this but here you go you know right while he's staying at the green man inn how he notices a series of photographs that celebrate the annual harvest each one featuring uh, a young girl as the may queen but the photo of the most recent celebration is missing it's extremely suspicious they could have done a much better job of hiding <laughs> this but but of course they want him to actually find it as we learn later but the landlord is he just brushes it off he says that it's broken and uh, how he is like i don't believe you but i like, can't really do anything about it also should point out at this point the landlord was played by lindsay kemp who um, is a very famous uh, performance actor in the uk he's been in multiple british films but his probably his most recognizable thing was that he taught uh, david bowie and kate bush how to physically act and how to do mime wow. um so he's a very very well respected man here playing the barman in the wicker man well he's really <laughs> i think he's really good in it. it like i mean it's a small role but he has a lot of physicality to him he's kind of like leering and and he's he does a really a lot with a little mm, oh absolutely he's got this very nice kind of um cheshire cat aspect to him almost in the sense of he's just kind of he sits there and just plays gently with howie he doesn't he doesn't actually get like full-blown involved in the same way that uh brit eklund's character does or lord summer isle or the rest of the villagers but he's he just kind of gently picks at him throughout the film whenever he has any engagement with him just just little nuggets of things that make you go yeah he's playing with him (laughs) he feels like he feels the most like a spider just like hanging in the web waiting for him to land it's great. It's really great. And uh, Howie walks around. He sees a bunch of them doing pagan stuff, having sex in a field, weeping naked on a tombstone. <laughs> Typical Sunday night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Reportedly, that is the woman who was also the body double for Brit Eklund. Oh. So, wow. There you go. I've learned something new. <laughs> there you go. Hey. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. Yeah. He also, he's shocked to see Christopher Lee. Uh, as Lord of Summer Isle, although he doesn't know that yet, presenting a young man to Willow to take his virginity. And while she does that, Lee just hangs out in the garden and recites a poem while Howie prays. And you really get this sort of, like, it's all, the movie is sort of represented in this moment where you see Howie sort of trying to resist and stand against these very, very pagan influences of nature and sex and the way that um life sort of comes together in that way um it's a really powerful scene i think and it's a nice poem that christopher lee does as well absolutely um it in many senses it's the very formal setting of battle lines so to speak yeah it's the it's the moment where you you realize okay this is um side a and side b and this is how they're going to interact with each other throughout the film and in all other cuts apart from 
the uh, final cut and the director's cut, that in- this entire sequence is missing. So the theatrical cut, which was the most common one in the UK for the best part of 30 years, from the moment that Howie sees the woman crying on the gravestone right the way through to the next day, wow. all of that is just gone. So you don't get the Christopher Lee speech, you don't get the setting of battle lines, completely messes with the pacing yeah. <laughs> in a very fundamental way. But seeing it back in the final cut um, is is just beautiful. It's really nice. And he's 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 got that very almost enlightening quality about him, Christopher Lee, as when he's reciting that poem. It's it's kind of like he's almost musing with himself about the sort of the nature of existence and, and how things sort of go forth from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he talks about how he thinks that he could turn and live with the animals and how none of them, like, none of them are really that conscious of what's happening, but it also means that they're not unhappy. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's just a very interesting poem. The next day, Willow directs him to the school where he sees children included as part of a May Day celebration uh, leading up to May Day including teaching children of the phallic association of the maypole, which, again, sort of shocks his very uh, rigid sensibilities. Absolutely, and it also, uh, that similar scene features the oldest schoolgirl in the world. <laughs> um, I don't know if you noticed, <laughs> it's pretty hard to avoid, but there's clearly a, a 38-year-old woman um, sat amongst the uh, the girls in the girls' school, um, which I don't know why she's there. Look, I don't know whether they just assumed it was fine. Or it's not nice but, to comment on a lady's age. <laughs> she does look significantly older, though. It's, it's impossible <laughs> not to see it. And the fact that she keeps a beetle in a desk that just goes round and round. I don't. I'm not. I'm not. If right. If she is genuinely a schoolgirl age schoolgirl, I reservedly apologise. But I genuinely just think that they went around the island after they found out they were one person short that day and went. Uh, she'll do. Get her. You know, no, she was going shopping that week, but I agree. I think it's very funny, um, and <laughs> it's it, it, it yeah, it's just uh, they were like, ah, shit, none of these kids can actually act. Too <laughs> 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 much. <laughs> Um, but he tells the teacher that he disapproves, and he asks the girls if they know Rowan, but they all say no. But there's one empty desk in the middle of everything, and obviously it sticks out. Like, it's so obtrusive. <laughs> it's, like, right in the middle. Um, and he goes to check it out, and there's a beetle tied to a nail, and this girl, woman, <laughs> creepily metaphors at him. <laughs> She, like it's, she literally does a metaphor at him about how he's the beetle and he's so stuck in his ways that he'll self-destruct, basically, is what it boils down to. And it's it's another one of those few incredibly surreal moments in this film. That, that One of the things that, um, if you've never seen this film before, that you probably need to be made aware of very clearly is there are moments in this film where things kind of just happen and they probably do have links back to paganism but there are just moments where you will see something very surreal there's a notable one um that's a little bit later in the film where a woman is breastfeeding a child while holding an egg i so i actually when i saw that i went and did some research and yeah that does have some connection to paganism in that it's a a fertility thing that she's doing where she wants to have another child Hmm. and so this is is sort of a a ritual to become pregnant again oh so there you go yeah but there are these there are these moments that unless you have that context which uh, in 1972 i imagine unless you (laughs) went to a library and well 1973 and went to a library and really really booked up on paganism you probably wouldn't (laughs) know why they were in the film which i think on one hand on the one hand is a really nice touch because like you say it does kind of increase 
increase the uh, the world building of this universe that Howie's kind of entered. Yeah. Um, while at the same time, just disorienting the audience a bit and 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 never quite making them sure what's really important, what's really going to have value later in the film, and what's just there to mess with him. Right. It really puts you in his shoes as well. You you get to experience his disorientation. Absolutely. Uh, he is creeped out by this beetle obviously i mean it's super creepy yeah it's really unsettling (laughs) um and he demands to see the school registry and the teacher is like show me a search warrant pig and he forces her out of the way all cops are bastards he executes this search illegally but lo and behold there is Rowan Morrison's name on the registry. The teacher pulls him outside and she's like, okay, guess what? She is actually dead, but we don't say that here. We just kind of return to the life force. Uh, and she tells him where Rowan is buried. And he goes to check on the records um, and again coerces them from the yeah. woman in charge. This, he's a real bad policeman officer here. <laughs> he is. He basically he turns up and he says, I want to see the records. And the record holder goes, no. And he goes, if you don't, I'm going to arrest you right now and you'll be spending the rest of your time on the mainland, do I understand? At which point she goes, uh, fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, right. Yeah. Um, Howie, which you I son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, basically. He's just, he takes no nonsense. I mean, he does break in and enter him without a warrant as well later in the film. <laughs> um, multiple times, in fact. Um, this whole court yeah, case would get thrown out. Yeah. <laughs> Best episode of Law and Order ever. <laughs> but he does check the records when she gives them to him, and uh, there's no record of Rowan's death, and everyone just kind of shrugs, and they're like, ah, take it or leave it, buddy. <laughs> and so how he, he takes a carriage ride, and it's very funny to see him kind of trying to look stern. <laughs> in this yes. carriage as it like takes them on a, a lovely ride through nature as the horses are sort of clip-clopping past <laughs> cherry blossoms and nice trees and he's sort of got his war face on and you're just like yeah nah. <laughs> and he passes a group of ladies doing a fertility ritual in the middle of a stonehenge t- uh, style thing and he finally arrives at lord summer isle's castle and it's very interesting to see this sort of dichotomy between the two of them because obviously howie as a christian has been talking all along about how um heathenistic and um barbaric the pagans are but in this scene it's very easy to see that summer isle is the reasonable and calm one while howie is all agitated and aggressive and it does really sort of ask you like well who is sort of being more barbaric here it's it's a very interesting relationship that the two of them have oh yes the the constantly sparring with each other over the exact intricacies of each other's religion um and i think Schaefer's sort of writing technique was to kind of create an atmosphere of you're not we're not so different you and i <laughs> um classic which, Surprisingly, that line isn't in the film, which I'm very, very shocked about. I wish it, it was. seems like an obvious... Oh, yeah, I could just hear Christopher Lee coming out with that straight away. <laughs> but no, I, re- I really do like how um, Christopher Lee really, as, as Lord Summerall, really challenges Howie on his beliefs. Strangely, they, they only focus on the contrast between paganism and Christianity, but I suppose it's applicable to all religions, really, when you boil it down to its barest elements. Right. Um, but I, I do love just that that constant sniping at each other, just those little little jibes, little yeah. looks that they give each other throughout that scene. It was arguably, actually, funnily enough, that sequence that Christopher Lee was the most unhappy with with the final edit, because apparently about that, that sequence 
should have been about 10 to 15 minutes longer. I can't see how much mileage they would have pulled out of that. Yeah, but wow. apparently, <laughs> yeah, apparently at least seven or eight minutes of that of deleted footage was just um, Lord Summer Isle explaining the full history of the island, um, oh. which Robin Hardy cut because he said that it was too wordy. Uh, which I believe yeah, it. I could believe it. Yeah. I could believe it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was the, that was the only thing that he was really still unhappy about was that he he didn't get his full grand sort monologue. of monologue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's one of my favourite scenes in the film just because of how bristly the pair are with each other. Yeah. Um, and then of course it all builds to that wonderful sequence um, just after Lord Summer Isle has explained the history of the island to Howie, where he sort of very borderly bellows, "They bought you up to be a pagan." <laughs> and he turns around and just gives that little wry smile as if to say, yeah, I got you. That's <laughs> it. I've, I've done it now. You're where I want you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is really great. And I mean, he is getting these sick burns in. He's like, Jesus had his chance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in a certain parliament, he blew it. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, they, they're just clashing over and over again. And as you say, he reveals the history of Summer Isle, that he is the grandson of a Victorian agronomist, which is someone who uses the science and technology of producing and using plants in agriculture for food, fuel, fiber, and land restoration. So there you go, folks. <laughs> the more you know. Yeah. <laughs> Summerisle also explains that his grandfather developed strains of fruit trees that would prosper in Scotland's climate, hitherto thought impossible, um, and encouraged the belief that old gods would use the new strains to bring prosperity to the island. And over the next several generations, the island's inhabitants, including Summer Isles, uh, the grandpappy Summer Isles child, and uh, and also current Christopher Lee Summer Isle, also embraced the pagan religion fully, um, actually coming to believe in it, or at least claiming to. Mm. Um, Howie is disgusted, and he uh, it boils over, and he asks finally for permission to exhume the body, which is granted, um, and he goes to dig it up, and lo and behold, there is a hair in the coffin. <laughs> Which is just great. And I, I also, at this point, I need to point out the uh, the grave digger um, who works in the cemetery is just fantastically whimsical in his yeah. performance. Just, <laughs> he, he could not give a crap about what how he is there to do. He's literally just again just playing with him but in the most wonderful over the top way like um when how he first discovers the uh, the gravesite and he's got a tree with a navel cord wrapped <laughs> around it and the gravedigger just comes up with oh yes well where else would it be right hey. <laughs> and it's like of course obviously and huh. the the hair bit as well when they actually find the hair in the casket for the first time the first thing he does is just turns and laughs at him <laughs> as if as if again like he didn't know that that was the case it's it's yeah, it's just great. He's he's fantastic in this. I agree. Um, and he confronts Summer Isle and the teacher, who is now there as well, with the hair body. And he's all disheveled and frazzled. And basically, they tell him to buzz off and get to detecting if you want answers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, which I thought was just so funny. that He's like, you're the detective, not me. Fuck off, guy. <laughs> <laughs> I really love um, the response that they give when the hair gets flung at them, which was basically um, how he says something along the lines of, and what do you think you're playing at? At which point they turn around and basically go, well, I would say that it's a pretty nice transmutation. Yeah. <laughs> if to completely just go out, because they, they're obviously already aware of what Howie is going to find. They've, right. they've planned all of this. So the, the idea that they just literally just keep that, that pressurized steam coming you know they they just they really are not giving him a break they yeah. just really really just want him to to really suffer through this entire experience i find is just wonderful yeah and uh, he sure is <laughs> he sure is suffering yeah. through it 
Um, he accuses them of killing her in some pagan ritual and is determined to find proof. So he heads back into town. He finds the missing harvest photograph and he develops it. And he has it has Rowan standing amidst a failed crop. And this solidifies his suspicions. Um, but he also remembers that Summer Isle had ominously alluded to the May Day celebrations tomorrow, and he considers that she may not be dead just yet. Absolutely. We can also add breaking and entering to his uh, list of crimes <laughs> against policing because he broke into the uh, chemist's shop to develop the photos. He sure did. Um, there was another point as well earlier in the film where he asked the chemist whether he still had the photos, and the chemist said he definitely didn't. So he's, uh, I don't know whether he counts stealing as well because he technically took the, the prints without asking. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Howie is a bad cop yeah he's a uh, at any means sort of guy yeah yeah he doesn't go by the boot but damn it he gets results <laughs> well does he <laughs> well <laughs> I, um, he gets yeah, a result yeah, but, certainly but not necessarily the one he wants no no certainly not um no no <laughs> he tries to go to sleep but willow and the band are working in conjunction to prevent that with music downstairs uh, she's banging on the wall and she's singing and it turns into this magic seduction dance and this is where that uh the butt double was implemented and uh he he has to resist through much much tribulation and is sweaty as hell <laughs> Oh yeah, he's uh, that wall. Um, I have I have never seen a man be as moist as that. No, nor I. Very, nor I. Very sweaty man. Very sweaty man. <laughs> um, and he passes out, only to be awoken the next day by Willow coming in, and she mentions that uh, he should have come over and that uh, she was inviting him. Um, and he says that it's against his religion to have sex outside of marriage, which seals his fate. If he had gone to her room that night it would have yeah. ruined their whole plan yeah they he probably would have been allowed to just clear off and um you know they they might have either killed him just to keep him quiet so that he didn't come back with a load of police officers to come and investigate this weird creepy or just been like island. here's rowan you found her yeah. congrats <laughs> yeah you can leave now please don't look at our giant man <laughs> <laughs> yeah ignore ignore the wicker man <laughs> That's actually, that's a question, right? And you've just actually caused me to have a bit of a continuity problem here. He had a seaplane. He flew over the island. You wouldn't be able to build a giant wicker man in, like, two days. It'd take longer than that. I mean, they would have had to have been prepared. Maybe he just they just didn't he didn't know what it was for. Maybe they put it on a side of the island that planes don't land in. Mm. That's the only. It was in that cave. But, <laughs> yeah, it was in the cave all along. <laughs> but yeah, no, I just I love the idea of of um, basically sex being the one thing that could have actually saved him. And he right, um, very yeah, counter he... to a lot of horror movies. In fact, mm, exactly. Well, I mean, Scream famously, uh, sex equals death. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He reads into the May Day rituals, and it again confirms his thoughts uh, saying that Rowan isn't dead but she's due to be sacrificed for the harvest. He realizes that he's out of his depth. He goes to go back to the seaplane and get back up only discover that it is no longer functional preventing him from leaving and everyone this is one of those surreal moments where it is just truly terrifying. Everyone pops up with these freaky masks to stare at him while he's trying to get this plane going. <laughs> it yeah. is really scary. I love those masks. I really want to get one because they, they're almost sort of bordering hyper-realistic yeah. in the sense that they've got all that real fur on and the eyes are just the right, everything's just the right sort of size and ratio. 
I know that there's a British band called Goldfrap that did quite a lot of work in the early mid 2000s. They did a album called Seventh Tree that was very heavily inspired by the artwork of the Wicker Man, and those masks in particular were one of those things that really sort of pushed them musically into that sort of folky area. Um, but yeah, no, those masks are absolutely gorgeous. I, I would love it's particularly the hair one. The, it's the first mask that pops up when um, Howie's in the seaplane. It's just it looks great. Yeah. it's really really unsettling, but in one of the best possible ways. <laughs> Absolutely. And he continues to investigate because he's like, all right, it's it's just me. I'm on my own here. He pleads with Miss Morrison. <laughs> he's like, I know. How can you do this to your daughter? Um, and Miss Morrison tells him to butt out. <laughs> yes. Uh, is that... No, I get these scenes mixed up because they do get moved around. Is that the same scene where she puts a frog in a little girl's mouth to, to steal her bad throat? Yes, it is. I believe... Yeah. I, uh, that might be a little earlier. No, this is it. This is the one. Yeah. Because <laughs> that that's, again, that's another one of those... Again, it's based on, on pagan traditions and beliefs but at the exact same time to watch it in 1973 as part of a sort of modern thing is quite unsettling just the idea that you take this little girl and, and shove a frog in her mouth and be like yep he's got <laughs> your bad throat now yeah listen to him croak it's, yeah it's just really <laughs> weird imagery but yeah. it's a total total vibe i can i can get behind hell yeah <laughs> he uh, in a rage inspects every house <laughs> yes and a boat at one point yeah um but he finds nothing apart from that girl in the wardrobe <laughs> right yeah he, he does find her but uh unfortunately not rowan and yeah. he comes back to the inn for a whiskey and a nap which i can respect that move <laughs> oh yeah yeah i can live with that <laughs> um and willow does like a little pagan spell to make him stay asleep but it turns out how he is just pretending all along mm. and he knocks out and ties up the innkeeper so he can steal his costume as a disguise and he enters the parade as Punch the Fool. He's not very enthusiastic, though, and I just lose my shit when Christopher Lee is like, you call that dancing? Cut some cables, yes. man. <laughs> whenever me and um, whenever me and my co-host on my show, Ben, are recording our commentaries, occasionally I will just turn to him and go, play the fool, it's what you're here for. <laughs> You've been getting drunk again at your own bar. Mm. It's a, it's it's a great just, scene, it's honestly. Great. It's fantastic and and lee at this point is just in full summer isle swing he is oozing charisma and 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 is almost is almost electric with yeah. his performance he's just he's giving it his all and the costume that he's wearing in those scenes is just wonderful it's, fun, it's, yeah. it's quite easily replicatable true replicable but yeah he wears it best he sure <laughs> does he sure does and it, it's a fun parade there's a lot going on but one thing that I think is really great about this parade sequence is that it does get more and more frenetic, and you feel like you're coming to the climax of the movie. They do a really good job of sort of bringing that emotion to a head. You know, everyone is putting their head between the swords and everything, and you're like, is this part of it? Are they onto him? Is this going to kill Rowan? Is this going to kill him? And the sun is beating down and everything, and it's just a really, really great sequence. Absolutely. And one of the um, one of the things that I do quite like um, from a directoral standpoint is that during the uh, festival sequences with the swords and, and with Mr. Punch being attacked by the, the ladies of the village, Hardy has chosen to focus more on close-ups than wides. The majority of the film is largely the head-and-shoulder shots, sort of mid-wides or wides, 
sides. Whereas with the festivities section specifically, um, there's a lot more close-ups, yeah. particularly around the swords bit, which really puts you into the action and, and sort of adds to that freneticism, I suppose. It, it gives it that bit more of a, a, of a momentum building. It makes it a lot more pacier and makes you much more invested in, in what's happening. Yeah. And it's also a bit more disorienting as well, really. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you're not. It, it's such a difference from the way that it's been presented pre, uh, prior to this moment that it does feel like a, a big shift and it does kind of throw you off your feet. And the camera lingers on a woman in a hair mask, which we've already seen associated with Rowan several times. And they do a great job of, of making you again, be in Howie's shoes where the swords slice and we and Howie are both like, Oh my God, it's her. That was her all along. Um, but, uh, it's Holly. It was just a trick. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, it's great. I, 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 it's just the balls of this film at this point in in time to sort of now start faking you out. Yeah, um, because it's already disoriented you with, um, you know, where is Rowan alive? Is Rowan even a person who exists? Right. And and leading Howie down the track as well. So now that you're in the third act and it is all to play for, and they they do this a couple of times in the third act. They sort of make it look like that's going to be the end of the film, mm-hmm. and then they pull the rug from under you, which makes the the final reveal all the more satisfying. Falling, I find. Yeah, definitely. They also go to make an offering to the god of the sea. This is, in my opinion, a toast that rivals even Big Trouble in Little China. He says, Oh god of the sea, I offer you this ale as a libation that you may bestow upon us the rich and diverse fruit of your kingdom. <laughs> Great toast. Brilliant. <laughs> and the the just the again the cine in it is just fantastic where you uh, you get a low shot of Lee raising the axe up about to strike down and then it cuts to a high shot of the barrels being rolled down and ale is spilling everywhere yeah. and the oceans becoming all foamy and oh it's just and Lee again at this point is is as Summer Isle is well and truly off his rocker, he is going through... Well, given the appearance of being well and truly off yeah. his rocker, as we'll later find out, he is giving it his all. He's on all cylinders, and it's it's just beautiful. I, I completely understand why this was his favourite role. <laughs> yeah. And now, a more dreadful sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how he leaps into action... Because we see Rowan tied up there, and then he rushes up to cut her free, and he sucker punches the guard. <laughs> yes, which is great. And a lot of people, right, when they talk about the Wicker Man, always talk about the scene in the 2006 remake where uh, Nick Cage punches a bear. No, he is a woman. bear. Yeah, he... No, he is a bear, and he punches a woman. Right. Um and I, for my money, uh, Sergeant Howie lights out in some random thug who's holding <laughs> who's holding Rowan is just so out of place in this film, <laughs> which then leads into an even more surreal film where it very quickly turns into like a 1970s cop show. Yeah, where you know you get the funk sort of funk folk bass going on as they're. <laughs> it's uh, they're great. To I love that score. It's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's beautiful. It's it's one of those ones... Right, and I always have this argument with Ben because Ben is a big Wicker Man fan. He always says that it's absolutely perfect for the film. I always say it's the one bit that I always kind of sit there and go, eh, I'm not sure because it, it's it's such a sharp tonal change from what we've been going to and I completely understand why it's there and it, and it works. I would never say that it's bad. It's just one of those ones where I kind of sit there and go... Okay, okay, this is where the film's going, all right. <laughs> they should have done it with can... a mandolin and a fiddle instead. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> get a bit of uh, fiddle drive going in, I can live with that. <laughs> but, uh, yes, as you say, in the in the remake, uh, Nick Cage is, he's wearing a bear costume instead of punch, but he does get a punch in on a lady hmm? who is guarding. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Right, that's it. You win. I'm off. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they flee into the cave together, Rowan and Howie, and when they leave, they like kind of climb out through this little exit, and they find Islanders just chilling there. A few of the Islanders, including Summer Isle and uh, the teacher and everything. And Rowan returns willingly, and he's trapped by the cliffs and the cave, and it dawns on him and us at the same time that he's fucked, basically. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in the film as well, um, and it inspired, I don't know whether you're aware of the BBC comedy The League of Gentlemen. No. No. Um, there's a scene, well, the scene where Rowan um, finally sees Summer Isle, he, she shouts over to him, um, did I do it well? Yeah. And Lord Summer Isle goes, you did it beautifully! <laughs> <laughs> and that just that sequence inspired an entire pair of characters that are very, very famous in England called Edward and Tubbs, wow. who are in a series called The League of Gentlemen, which was very heavily inspired inspired by the wicker man um that gives you an idea it's a very dark comedy series i'll have to check it out yeah yeah it's really it's really good fun if you like dark comedy it's it's really really good fun but but <laughs> one of the catchphrases that edward has whenever um because they edward and tubbs run a local shop and edward sends tubbs out to do missions in the city because they don't deal with local people local people are too weird for oh, them interesting so whenever so whenever tubbs comes back from doing a job edward will always go you did it beautifully and give her a big old kiss and sort of he's, he's very heavily influenced on lord Summer Isle as a character. Nice. Um, but that bit always makes me smile, just because I always remember the comedy show that that got me into that kind of weird, dark humour. I guess you could say that this is truly fertile ground. Mm, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Um, Summer Isle tells Howie that Rowan was never the intended sacrifice. Howie himself is. You fool! Truly. Uh. He fits their God's four requirements, which are that he came of his own free will, he has the power of a king by representing the law. He is a virgin, and he's a fool. He also, I think, this is, I think, something really interesting, is that he also explains that Howie gets something out of this as well, which is that as a true believer, he gets this martyr's death. So not only will he get supposedly resurrected according to the rules of his religion, but he also gets to sit with the saints and the select. And it's like, well, Howie is... If, uh, he's getting something out of it in his own mind. Like, Summer Isle is not wrong. It does sort of present this interesting idea of, like, hey, this is a win-win for everyone here. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. He's he's posing the idea to Howie that, that not only will he gain from it, but the Islanders will also gain from it, too. Right. Howie, from his perspective, this is his worst possible nightmare because he's now completely abandoned and it's only his sort of stern determination um, and faithfulness to his religion that's kind of keeping him on an even keel from just freaking out, basically, at this point. Yeah. And as the conversations between Summer Isle and, uh, and Edward Woodward's character go on, he very quickly reveals that Summer Isle is kind of doing a last roll of the dice with all right. of this, and that he's only managed to keep the villagers on side with this being the the sort of end solution, which again is is really nice because you've then got that sort of multiple levels where uh, multiple levels of sort of awareness. So you've got the villagers who aren't aware of Summer Isle's ultimate plan, but knows that he needs to get Howie out of the way in order to try and keep the peace for at least another twelve months. Right. You've got Howie who's desperately trying to convince the villagers that you know killing him won't bring back their damned apples <laughs> and then you've got the villagers who are just sort of caught between it who are kind of who've been raised as pagans who much like howie are very stubborn to the point that they do not want to change what for them at least is their religion is their fundamental is their one and only beginning and end right so it's it's nice to have all three of those kind of 
running narratives kind of overlapping each other um and as an audience member again on rewatch you you very much pick up all of these very subtle nice little bits where um you kind of realize that everybody's kind of operating on different levels i agree how he is in this uh like you say he's getting really angry he warns them that the the fruits the, the trees are failing permanent your damned apples <laughs> And and that the villagers will turn on Summer Isle and sacrifice him next summer when the next harvest fails as well. But Summer Isle insists that the sacrifice of the willing king-like virgin fool will be accepted and that the next harvest will not fail. Now, I don't know much about plant husbandry and fruit strain development. And frankly, I didn't have the time or energy to do a ton of research into figuring out whether it was reasonable that these trees would fail or not. But I will say that the what-if creates a great tension and a ticking clock in your head that this is really only a temporary solution to placate the villagers and that if it does fail again next summer what does that mean for this island um i think it's really that one line does a lot to really create sort of a a, a runway for this movie in your mind absolutely it's one of those ones where the choices that are presented to the villagers is to basically accept blind faith as a means to an end and if um if somebody has to die in order to placate the gods and ensure that a harvest is fruitful then the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few right which is wonderful because like you say it, it creates that ticking clock it creates that moment where you realise that Howie is in a position where he's got to either try and talk himself out of of being sacrificed or it's just going to happen and there's nothing he can do to sort of prevent it. He's he's now in a helpless situation. You know, even his religion... Well, his religion is actually now more of a detriment to him than a a benefit. Yeah. Which is is wonderful because it's just sort of that long-term and short-term pessimism being worked in together. You've got Howie's sort of short-term pessimism of knowing, well, this is it. You know, crikey, I've I've bugged it this time. I'm going to have to be burned. (laughs) Um, But then the long-term pessimism of, well, this isn't going to restore the apples. This isn't going to do anything. This is just killing somebody. So realistically, the island is probably going to just collapse industrially. You know, a lot of people are probably going to die horribly and needlessly yeah. because Lord Summer Isle wanted to maintain another 12 months of the good life, so to speak. Right. Yeah, it's almost like if there was a pandemic happening and you downplayed it because you, <laughs> quote-unquote, didn't want to cause a panic, um, and instead that resulted in the death of thousands and thousands of people needlessly. It's sort of like that. George, I know we don't have webcams on, but I can almost feel you burning through my screen, <laughs> staring down the barrel of the camera at this point. <laughs> Yeah, it's frighteningly accurate. In fact, you know what? I'll tell you this now. When all of this first kicked off in the real world, sorry to break into the real world here, when all this kicked off, in the first instance, I turned to Ben, who I I keep in regular contact with, and I said to him, this is basically going the way of the Wicker Man. We've (laughs) We've got a president and a prime minister who are both basically saying, trust us and we'll make sure nothing happens when we know that everything is going to happen. Yeah. And... Yeah, you know, and it's I'm, happening. I'm sure that, yeah, yeah, I'm sure the uh, the wicker Trump is looking really nice right about now. What you guys got two months left? So, oh uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, to bring it back to the actual movie, oh, uh, <laughs> the villagers they force Howie inside this giant wicker man statue, along with various animals. And they set it ablaze and surround it, singing, Sumer is a cumin in. Uh, super creepy. This is 
the like plastered smiles on everyone's yeah. face as they like swing their arms back and forth is just Whoa. so effective. It's the determination in the swings yes. as well. It's not like they're just going with the flow. There is <laughs> there is force behind those oh. arms going. They truly believe this is this is the beginning of a, a beautiful and bountiful utopia in the making. Yeah. Um it was that scene, funnily enough as well, that nearly got the entire production kicked out of um the village they were filming in. Uh because the villagers who lived in the town that they were filming the Wicker Man burning in were convinced that they were going to burn a goat um, that was a local mascot. Wow. Um, and it was only when, I think it was Robin Hardy and Anthony Schaefer basically went down to the town and had a town hall meeting with everybody <laughs> where they promised they would not burn the beloved mascot goat that they sort of calmed down a bit and let them uh, let them keep filming. So very briefly, it did actually turn into a slightly real-world Wicker Man. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that he was able to convince them. Reportedly on his off days, Edward Edward Woodward was repeatedly asked if he wanted to go to the spot where the climax was to be shot so he could see the Wicker Man structure, but every time he declined, preferring to see it for the first time when the scene was shot, which means that as Woodward sees the structure getting dragged over the hill as Howie, his iconic cry of oh god oh jesus christ was kind it's r- realistic it's this mm. in character moment for him where he is genuinely seeing it for the first time as the camera was like moved around to film the scene woodward asked hardy if he was actually going to be put in the wicker man and uh, hardy was like yeah man <laughs> you're going in there <laughs> <laughs> He was carried up the steps to the structure's midsection by Ian Campbell, and Woodward reportedly was like, "Uh, don't drop me, don't you dare drop me, and Campbell had to just like laugh him off and be like, don't worry, I won't, but when the actual burning scene was happening, he, he said that this was the... Like he had been acting for six decades, and that he had never been more scared than when he was inside the Wicker Man as it burned. Oh, um, understandably so. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's just the um, franticness of the production and the fact that so many things weren't quite. A hundred percent. Like if it was an entirely smooth production where everybody was happy and it wasn't the <laughs> middle of autumn and in Scotland and everything was miserable and things kind of hadn't landed a hundred percent right with getting stuff done, I'd probably be a bit more comfortable with being burnt in the giant wicker man. <laughs> As it stands, yeah, I'd probably be sort of uh, collar tugging at this point, you know. <laughs> Just in case uh, anything didn't quite go right. Right. But yeah, they had to really, really be precise with that shoot because they built two Wicker Men originally. One of them is the one that was used on screen and was burnt on screen. They did have a backup just in the, the off chance that it didn't work. That Wicker Man ended up going to Cannes. That was the thing that Roger Corman saw that really right. sold him on the idea of buying the film. Uh, I don't know what happened to the second Wicker Man. The remnants of the first Wicker Man, you can still go to them. Um, the pyre that built... The pyre structure that the Wicker Man was built on is still there, um, so you can go up to it. I think it's a lot more reduced now than it was because um, fans have regularly made pilgrimages to all of the key locations of the film, right. and in particular that pyre. Um, so there's large juts of wood that are now missing from it. But yeah, the um, the sort of scorch marks and the sort of base of the pyre is still there. You can still go to it to this day. Which yeah, is really neat. It is really neat. And I mean, that sort of the fact that it is still there, it's left such an indelible impact on the ground in which it was filmed, I think sort of ties into the sort of nature of paganism and everything, which I think is interesting. And uh, basically, Woodward said that the terror forced him to act his socks off. And that's exactly what he does. Because inside the Wicker Man, a terrified Howie recites Psalm 23 
and prays to God before cursing the islanders as he and the animals inside burn to death. The head of the wicker man collapses in flames, revealing the setting sun. It's great. Which is is a beautiful shot. Yeah. And it took them it took them ages to get it set up. They were very, very worried because they, they knew the shot they wanted, which was the shot that they ultimately managed to get, but obviously because the wicker man wasn't burning evenly, they couldn't hundred percent predict which way it was gonna fall. So they had to get the focus right as close as possible as as, as they could, because if it fell the opposite direction to the direction they were planning it to fall, um, it would go blurry and the shot wouldn't work. But luckily, just at the last minute, they managed to pull it off. But it took hours, apparently, to set up that, that finishing shot where um, where the head sort of drops down to reveal the sunset. The alternate ending that I mentioned earlier that the studio had wanted was a sudden rain puts out the flames of the Wicker Man and uh, spares Howie's life. And I think that it's <laughs> really what a weird idea to be like this whole thing we're throwing it out god is real he saves him (laughs) it's it's, and he just gets this nice happy ending for howie i mean i have a hunch which way you'll fall but i assume that uh you like it the way it is and not this more traditional happy ending way um yeah (laughs) i think the original ending is the best but that being said i don't know whether you found any of this in your research did you hear about the proposed wicker man sequel um i did in fact i am about to talk about it my friend ah very well (laughs) i was gonna say because that that then takes it to the next level if you're you're talking about uh, taking leaps of faith on uh, on ending a series Right. Um, the, the proposed sequel to this, it just takes the Wicker Man and goes out the bloody window. It sure does. <laughs> but yeah, basically, so this movie uh, has had a long-lasting impact with its, with its filmic influences seen in movies like Hot Fuzz and Midsummer. It even also gives its name to an annual music and arts festival held where the movie was shot in Dumfries and Galloway in Scotland since 2004. And at the end of the festival, they burn a Wicker Man sculpture there again as a sacrifice to the festival gods. About this sequel, so in 1989, Schaefer wrote a 30-page film script treatment entitled The Loathsome Lampton Worm, a direct sequel to The Wicker Man for producer Lance Reynolds. The idea is that this would have been more fantastical in subject matter than the original film and relied more heavily on special effects. But it would have began immediately after the ending of the first film, where Neil Howie is rescued by a bunch of police officers from the mainland who just show up in time <laughs> yes. to save him. Um, I joked, uh, when I first heard about this film, I joked that uh, the sequel would open with Howie falling out of the Wicker Man that was still on fire. Some of the wood gave way and he just dropped out. So the villagers <laughs> just picked him up and threw him back in again, <laughs> film over. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I'll be honest, it, it obviously it doesn't feel like it would fit in with the tone of The Wicker Man. But Absolutely not. <laughs> but the idea of the loathsome Lambton Worm, I think, is kind of interesting in that how he sets out to bring Lord Summer Isle and his pagan followers to justice, but becomes embroiled in a series of challenges which pits the old gods against his own Christian faith, with the script culminating in a climactic battle between Howie and a fire-breathing dragon, the titular Lambton Worm. <laughs> 
<laughs> Which it's just, I, I don't know what he was thinking when he wrote the script for this. Truly um, wild, truly wild. Robin Hardy refused to read it. <laughs> Schaefer basically turned up and went, I've written this sequel. He just went, no. <laughs> Edward Woodward received a copy of it, but said he'd never read it and wouldn't want to read it. Um, Christopher Lee, I think, changed addresses just to avoid receiving a copy <laughs> of it. The idea, I mean, in my mind, I'm imagining sort of a cross between sort of Lord of the Rings and like a, maybe a Hot Fuzz vibe. Yeah. Um, a bit of first blood thrown in as well, because <laughs> by this point, you know, how he's on the run and he's got the villagers coming after him still who need the sacrifice. He really is but, putting on the bandana this time. <laughs> yeah. He's back and he's pissed off more than he was in the first film. <laughs> he was already yeah. really pissed off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just, just the idea of it, just the whole thing sounds absolutely... It sounds like the kind of thing that I would talk about on my show, which... <laughs> Is is saying something? So it's true. Yeah, but it so it was never produced, like you say. But the treatment, if someone wants to check it out, there are two ways that you can do this. Uh, it was published complete with illustrations in the companion book Inside the Wicker Man, so you can check it out in there. Or there's a fan made full cast audio drama adaptation of the Loathes- the Loathsome Lambton Worm, uh, released this very year in 2020. So oh, wow. you can go and find that if you're so inclined. Did not know about that, and I know what I'm going to be doing this evening. Well, Thank there you. you go. <laughs> and of course, there's also, like we said, the famous Nick Cage remake. Uh, calling it imperfect is generous. The bit where um, how uh, Howie in air quotes goes to a car to check on a girl in the back seat, and a tankard explodes. <laughs> I think is the one. Um, immediately set the tone for me on whether I was going to like this film or not. I like it. I'm not somebody who absolutely hates it, um, but I like it for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I'm one of these people who goes, yeah, let's do the room and the Wicker Man. That'll be there great. You go. I also, <laughs> yeah. I think it's funny um, that, so like I say, I don't think it's a perfect movie, but even that is less generous than Hardy, who, quote, had concerns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, that Which, feels very British to me. <laughs> that's, uh, it, to translate that into uh, UK, that basically means, oh dear. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I did not get paid enough to sign this <laughs> off. What on earth have you done? Yes. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. all of that just lends credence to the idea that this movie could not be recaptured and it is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. So now that we've reached the end of the podcast, Dan, I'll let you start off and we'll sum up exactly why that is the case. Uh, I think that The Wicker Man is the best horror movie ever made for a multitude of reasons. Not only is it elevated horror um which is a personal preference of my own um you have a multi-layered multifaceted script that is just brimming with ideas and energy and vibrance it's completely tonally set you have some gorgeous uh, direction which uh, is is just visually eye-popping and in a in a sea of beiges and oranges that was 70s cinema this film is one of the most colorful films you will probably see of that day decade on the cast front you have a superb variety of performances ranging from the sort of closed and quiet to the bombastic and over the top add in a fantastic folk soundtrack that is worth owning on multiple formats (laughs) just for the sake of it which has a beautiful tone and a rich and vibrant sort of construct taking older elements and renewing them into modern for the 70s folk sing-alongs and it's one of those films that just kind of stands the test of time. Its its core elements could be easily transplanted into modern cinema and probably in some cases has been transplanted into modern cinema very successfully. 
since its release, it's been screened in stereoscopic 3D. It's been screened in Smell-O-Vision, which <laughs> I love that. There was a sing-along version. Some screenings have bits where you can throw things at the screen and shout like Rocky Horror. It's been shown in cathedrals. It's it's a very, very highly regarded film that I think rightfully earns the title of The Citizen Kane of Horror. There you go. Couldn't have said it better myself, but I'm going to try. Um <laughs> I, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because one, it's just absolutely gorgeous. It just looks so great. Like we talked about the fact that they they managed to do it in a time when the like landscape didn't actually even look that way, and it manages to feel natural and beautiful um, is really spectacular. But the script, which is great, and this and the way it's directed, which is great, are elevated by the performances in this movie, which I think are really just spectacular, especially Woodward and Lee. I mean, it does such a great job of capturing the feel of a mystery, and and because we are with Howie and so empathetic to him in terms of, like, they are... we're, We're getting information at the same time that he is. It always feels like Howie is one step behind... And we also are so interested in in the pursuit of this case because we are also one step behind. And as it becomes a little more clear and we see that his dogged pursuit of this mystery will be self-destructive, the dread of that starts to grow as we watch it lead to its inevitable conclusion. And I just think that they execute it so well it it never feels like it overstays its welcome even though this is the foot the version with more footage put back in christopher lee is just doing so great like you say i understand why this is his favorite performance because he does such a great job with it and uh, the music rules man uh freaking <laughs> corn rigs and barley rigs and corn yeah. rigs are bonnie and uh, <laughs> so is this movie so there you go <laughs> absolutely couldn't have put it better myself (laughs) dan this was so much fun i really want to encourage people to check out uh, your channel so please tell people where they can find you on social on youtube all that jazz thank you very much for having me it's been a fantastic uh, way to spend my saturday evening it's been beautiful so cheers again you can reach me on youtube at tytd reviews Um, i'm also on twitter and instagram uh, under the same name and i have a website which is www.tytdreviews.com we do new reviews every friday we do random blog posts as and when and we also have a series called the comedy dining experience where we do feature commentaries over more mainstream films and classics great go check all those things out dan's a great guy super funny his reviews are super insightful i really encourage you to subscribe to his channel um as far as my plugs you can find me on twitter at little horror phl uh, you can find me on the internet at www.littlehorrorphl.com you can find me on Facebook at Little Horror PHL. In fact, Little Horror PHL is pretty much your key to everything. Best Little Horror House in Philly. There's even a Patreon if you decide that you want more Best Little Horror House in Philly at patreon.com forward slash Little Horror PHL, where we're doing bonus footage, or not footage, bonus episodes, commentaries, riff tracks, style things, and uh, ad-free and early episodes as well. So lots of good stuff going on there. And uh, leave a rating and a review if you feel like doing that. It helps a lot. I say it every week. Never actually happens, but maybe one day someone will leave a rating and a review. <laughs> yeah, do that on iTunes. 
And uh, that's pretty much it for me. So uh, thanks yeah. again, Dan. Thank you very Bye. much. Take care.